Thank you. A lot of work. Tom, first choir rehearsal, three people? Yeah. Tom hung in there, and now we have a nice choir, and we sure appreciate it. Thank you for your many hours of rehearsals and, and uh, working. In these Sundays after Easter, we're doing a survey of Jesus' life and ministry. And we are primarily focusing on what we call the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They are coordinated and they tell the story of Jesus. John is more of a theological piece of work. But So as we move through this uh, time, we ask ourselves, what was Jesus' purpose? What did Jesus want to accomplish? What did Jesus want his people to understand about who he was? And then because we're reading these narratives, these, uh, the gospel stories, we also have to ask, what were the gospel writers doing with this material? And we find out that each of the writers was actually coming from a different angle because as we put the synoptics together, we get a full, rich picture of Jesus' life. And some of them move the events around. They're not necessarily written to be chronological. They're written to help us understand what Jesus was about and what his ministry was about. And today we look at the section of the gospel that describes Jesus' entrance into his teaching and healing ministry. And, and in these early days, what was he trying to establish? What did he want these people to understand about him and what he was all about? And then as Matthew, Mark, and Luke sat down to write this story, what did they want us, their readers, to understand? It's like writing a script for a, a, a movie or a television program or writing a novel. The first thing you do is establish your characters. You have to love who you're supposed to love, and you have to be annoyed by the people you're supposed to be annoyed about. Otherwise, the story doesn't work. And so understand that these narrative pieces, these narrative literatures are helping us understand who Jesus is. Now, as we go through this morning, what I've done is block the three Gospels, the text of the three Gospels, in this, as much as we can figure the chronological order. We follow Mark. Mark is the most precise about the, the sequence of events. So Mark is the play-by-play. -play. And then Matthew and Luke are the color commentators. So we'll be going a little bit from Mark and, and adding some color. But what I want you to think about as we go through this time this morning is... What did Matthew, Mark, and Luke want us from this portion of Scripture to understand about the major character in their writings, this man named Jesus? Well, the three synoptics begin, introduce Jesus' ministry when he came into Galilee. Mark tells us, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news. Matthew elaborates on that, says it calls Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles, because Galilee was a, a hubbub, it was a, a commercial center, it was a trade route, and there was a lot of Gentiles and all kinds of people there. So Jesus said, I'm going to go and start my ministry where the action is. And the Jews in Jerusalem, and especially the, the religious leaders, would think of Galilee much in the way we think of Las Vegas or New Orleans. It's a place where those people live. But Jesus said, those people are the people I came for. And so he began his ministry there. What, what uh, Luke adds is that uh, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. 
He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. So this initial introduction, Jesus went where the action was. Jesus went where he was needed. And, and then we, we find that, that shortly after he got there, uh, Mark tells us, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake. And he tells that story that has become familiar to us, where Jesus called his first four disciples. These two sets of brothers, fishermen, uh, Andrew and Peter, James and John. And as he called them, he, he, he said to them, I will, well, the New International Version says, I will send you out to fish for people. But what Jesus actually said is, I will make you to become fishers of men. Because that's what discipleship is. Jesus said, I'm not just going to send you out. I will change your lives. I will make you to become. And, and, and Mark wrote it specifically to talk about this process. Because Jesus said, I am going to mentor you. I'm going to develop you. I'm going to teach you. Not just about your profession, but about your whole life. And the beautiful thing, Luke ended this story this way, talking about the disciples. So they pulled their boots up, boats up on the shore, left everything, and followed him. So you see what they're doing at the beginning of this story is he said that not only did Jesus have the public ministry, he also had this private ministry. He had these four guys that he called first, and he said, I am going to change your lives by the power of God. And they were so excited about that, Luke says they pulled their boats up, they were professional fishermen. They left everything and followed him. And that's what Jesus calls every single follower to do. Not necessarily to leave your profession, certainly not. But to turn your profession into a mission field. To turn your family into a mission field. To, turn your, to pull your boats up on the shore and say, I have committed, I am going to follow Jesus. There's no going back. And that's one of the first things they want us to understand. And then the next thing they talked about was Jesus having authority. So they introduced him, that he was going where the action was. He started calling people to, to train, to carry on the work after he was gone. And then they began talking about Jesus' authority. They went to Capernaum, it says, that Jesus and his disciples. They went over to the city of Capernaum. And when Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority. He didn't quote the Jewish laws and the Jewish rabbis. He taught the word of God straight out, straight on. That's why he could teach with authority. And then in that synagogue, there was a man who was possessed by an impure spirit. And he stood up and, and, and was causing problems in the thing. The, the demon was taking control of him. And Jesus said, be quiet to the demon. Sternly he said, be quiet and come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? This new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. And news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. And then the next portion, the, the, the writers tell us that Jesus went around all around Galilee teaching and, 
and, and, and, and healing and casting out demons. And they, they keep this theme before us that Jesus even had authority over the demonic powers. Now, he had already gone one-on-one -on -one with Satan himself and resisted every, everything Satan could throw at him in his time of temptation. And now Satan's sending his minions after Jesus. And Jesus, what are you kidding me? And he spoke with authority, and he said to those demons, out. He showed that he was God's authority. They summarized this Galilean ministry. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of his kingdom, and healing diseases and sicknesses among the people, and driving out demons. So that summary of Jesus' time is about an 18-month period of time where Jesus ministered there in Galilee. But they closed that off with a, a, a story of Jesus cleansing a leper. Now, the rabbis said there is no human way to cure leprosy. It is incurable. And there was a law that a person was never to touch a leper because they were unclean. So as we come into this story, a man with leprosy came to Jesus, begged him on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. We say, ho-hum. The original readers would have said, are you kidding me? He broke that law. He touched a leper. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. So Jesus touched the untouchable and healed the incurable. Touched the untouchable and cured the incurable. What these writers want us to understand is that Jesus had the authority to break the rules, to make new rules, to reconstruct reality. And so, as we end this portion of, of, uh, of Mark, chapter 1, as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in the lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. So at the end of Mark 1, Jesus is so popular, he can't even go into a town. They, 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 they mob him. They want to touch him. They want to hear him. He teaches with authority. He acts with authority. He heals people. He casts out demons. He does stuff nobody has ever done before. And then the mood changes, beginning in chapter 2. And we go through five oppositions, five disputes, where not only was the populace following Jesus, and hunting him down just to be near him. But when you become that popular, you also raise the ire of the leaders. And so these five disputes, we just very quickly look at them, but the first one was Jesus healed a paralytic. And it wasn't just that he did it, it's how he did it. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus entered Capernaum, the people heard he had come home. He, had come, he was living there in Capernaum now. They gathered in such large numbers, there was no room left even outside the door. So once again, people were mobbing. And these four guys had a buddy that 
was a paralytic, and he couldn't get there by himself, so they put him on a mat, on a thing, and they carried him to come and see Jesus. When they got there, because there were so many people, they couldn't get near him, so they climbed up on the top of the house, dug a hole in the roof, and let the guy down in front of Jesus with ropes. And, and, and so Jesus saw them, saw their compassion, saw their faith, and, and the guy's faith, and, and, and he said to him, your sins are forgiven. And the four guys who carried him there, and probably the guy on the mat, said, yo, <laughs> thanks. I didn't come to get my sins forgiven. I came to get healed, man. I want to walk. But the Pharisees said, and all three Gospels say this. All three Gospels say this. The Pharisees all said, who does this guy think he is? He's blaspheming. Only God can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus knew what they were thinking. So he said to them, hey, guys, uh, yo, hey, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say to this poor guy, get up and walk? Well, obviously, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Anybody can say that. But Jesus said, just so you know, and all three Gospels say this, that the Son of Man has power to forgive sin. I say to you, get up and walk. And the guy got up and walked. Jesus said, I want you all to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. You're right, guys. Only God can forgive sin. And guess what I just demonstrated to you by this poor guy getting up and walking out of here carrying his mat? I have the power to forgive sin. Put one and one together. Two can only mean that I am the Son of God. So what they were trying to destroy him, he used to demonstrate who he was. And then the next dispute came over when he called Matthew, Levi, the tax gatherer. Jesus was walking by the sea, and he went by the tax gatherer's booth, and, and you could see all the Pharisees and the people say, oh, that's one of those guys, tax gatherer. He works for the Romans. And Jesus said, hey, follow me. Levi got up and followed him. That's the first error. How can you call this creep? You're going to let this guy be one of your disciples? Do you know the process we go? We get the resumes. We look at the SATs. We do all of that stuff before we bring somebody on. And you just watch this, this creep. And ask him to follow you. What's wrong with you? Well, that's error number one. Error number two is Matthew said, hey, Jesus, would you come to my house for dinner? And Mark tells us Jesus went, and many tax gatherers and sinners were there because many of those people were following Jesus. And immediately the uh, religious uh, leaders got their heads together and said, that proves it. If he was really who he says he is, he wouldn't be working. He wouldn't have anything to do with that scum. He'd be hanging out with us. Well, Jesus said to them, it is not really the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then get the iron, get, get what he says, but go and learn what this means. And he quoted Hosea ch uh, chapter 6, verse 6. 
I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So he's saying to these religious snobs, these snotty Pharisees, go learn your own scriptures. Now, in a shame-honor culture, Jesus may have just may as well just reached out and slapped them upside the head. Go and learn what you say you already know. Then there were questions about fasting. So they got him at a feast, you eat with these people, and then he says, well, how come you're not fasting? And your disciples aren't fasting. John's disciples fast. Disciples of the Pharisees fast. What's wrong with you guys? And Jesus said, who goes to a wedding and fasts during the wedding feast? That would be an insult to the host. And for my disciples, the bridegroom is here. The one to be honored is here. I'm still with them. Why should they fast now? There's coming a day when I will be gone, and then they will fast. But that whole imagery from the Old Testament of referring to himself as the, as the husband and all is a reference to himself as God. And once again, he's making it very clear to these guys that a new thing is coming. And so he used those, that parable, those two little parables about putting a, a patch of new cloth on an old garment. And then when you wash that garment, that new cloth shrinks and makes the tear worse. You can't fix an old thing by attaching something new to it. And then he said, you can't put new wine into old wineskins because the old wineskins have already expanded. And then if you put new wine into those old wineskins, they can't expand anymore and they will burst and you lose the wineskins and the wine. Once again, you can't take something new and try to pour it into old structures. What he's saying is, this is new stuff. I'm not coming to patch up Judaism. I'm coming with a new covenant. This isn't trying to fix the way you people have destroyed the Mosaic Covenant. It is to give you a whole new way of life. This isn't about rules and rituals. This is about a relationship. This is about being in love with me and me being in love with you. This is a new wine. You can't put it in old wineskins. This is a new piece of cloth. You can't patch up the old. With and then once again, Luke comes, the, and, 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 and Luke adds this little thing to it. It's only Luke has. No one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for they say the old is better. Now, he's not talking about grape juice and wine. He's talking about a, the wine you're used to and this new brand of wine. You know, if you're used to Thunderbird, then the new stuff is kind of different. And so he says, I, I, I'm not giving you Thunderbird. I'm giving you good stuff. This ain't Ripple. This is good stuff. But a lot of you are saying, well, you know, I kind of like Thunderbird. Kind of grew up on Ripple. I'm staying with the old stuff. And he says, you're absurd. You're out of your mind. This is something brand new. Embrace it. Go with it. And then the fourth one was they were disputed about grain. He was... His disciples were eating uh, grain on the, on the Sabbath day, and they got all upset with him about that. And Jesus answered that by saying, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Authority, authority. And then the final one was a man with a withered hand in the synagogue, on, again on the Sabbath. And he was a plant. 
the leaders planted in there just to see what Jesus would do. We heal this guy on the Sabbath. Well, Jesus healed him, and once again, they came after him. And once again, he made them look rather silly by telling them, you guys just don't get it. Then there's a wonderful summary there in the, the last part of Mark chapter 3 that uh, summarizes the ministry, Jesus' ministry. It just says once again that they were coming in droves, large crowds, many people from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, regions beyond the Judea, Jews and Gentiles both, flooding to Jesus. And he was healing them of their diseases and casting out impure spirits and, and, and teaching them from the word of God. And Luke says all the people tried to touch him because power was coming from him to heal them all. So what, what do these writers want us to know about Jesus? What's the point? What would they have us, after reading these first three chapters of Mark and these, so, oh, by the way, I have blocked all this text. Uh, I gave Kathy a copy already. I blocked all the, these three Gospels so that the, the stories are all together. If you would like this, fascinating. I love this this way, reading through this. And, and so if any, just email me. I'll send you this thing. And it's a great way to read the Gospels because all the events are put side by side. Anyway, what do they want us to know? What they want us to know, and what Jesus wanted his people to know, is Jesus is not a neutral character. You can't say ho-hum about Jesus. And there are two kinds of responses, those who followed him and those who rejected him. In the first group, those who followed him, they were confused, curious, and committed people. The second group was composed of apathetic, antagonistic, and outraged, a spectrum many different ways of relating to Jesus. Most people who regularly attend church are somewhere along the spectrum of the first group, somewhere between curious and committed. But Jesus says all through the Gospels, those of you who are curious, and what the other one was, <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, whatever it was, move into the committed. The curious and the confused. Who's confused, right? The confused and the curious move into the realm of the committed. And Mark told us that Jesus called to the second group, the apathetic, antagonistic, and outraged, was repent and believe. To the apathetic, he says, wake up. To the antagonistic, he says, loosen up. Give me a chance. To the outraged, he says, listen up. I created you. I loved you. I love you. I am going to die for you. Rethink. Rethink how you come to me. But we must be clear about one fact. Jesus unequivocally, unabashedly, unflinchingly, unapologetically claimed and demonstrated that he fully believed he was God. He was Israel's promised Messiah, and he expects us to believe that claim. People can refuse to believe that Jesus is God. It's their privilege. But no one can legitimately say that Jesus never claimed 
to be God. And that's what these gospel writers, before they move into the rest of his ministry, want us to understand this is who we're dealing with. When you read the gospels, you are reading about the very Son of God. He claimed to be God. C.S. Lewis reminds us that it's absurd to say Jesus was a good moral leader or a wise teacher, but he wasn't God. If he claimed to be God and knew he wasn't, he was a charlatan, a deceiver, a liar. And so we must avoid him. If he believed he was God and he wasn't, he's a lunatic. We must pity him. If he believed he was God and he was and is God, then he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we must worship him and follow him.